Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special New Year's Eve best of 2018 show here on the American Shoreline Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I am the co-host of the show, Tyler Buckingham, filling in, doing a double duty for this show. Uh, Peter is not with us, but I'm sitting here in a cozy uh, room in Ojai, California, and I thought for New Year's Eve, we would need to put together our best segments of 2018. Now, uh, New Year's is a special time of year where we, we, we look forward to 2019, of course, and we also look back on 2018. And for all of those, for all of you who have come along for the ride and listened to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and, and brought that into your profession, into your lives, I just want to thank you on behalf of our entire team, uh, our, all of our hosts. We really appreciate you listening in and being a part of ASPN and CoastalNewsToday.com. We started this little uh, endeavor to bring people to the table and start conversations. And so far, I think we are, uh, we're learning, we're getting better with each podcast we do. Uh, But I think we're, I think we're getting somewhere. I think we're having some great conversations and boy, we've got some great stuff to look forward to in 2019. On Wednesday, we've got Senator Carper from Delaware on Friday, we've got Brian Brennan on my show, the Beach Shack Podcast. And coming up later in January, the author of The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, Jack E. Davis, Pulitzer Prize winner. So we got some great stuff. We are working as hard as we can to bring you the best possible content on ASPN. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, tell your friends about what we are doing and uh, enjoy this show, the best segments of 2018. Uh, we are so darn excited to be with you today. Uh, Peter, we've been working on this for some time, haven't we? We have, you know, and I think, Tyler, we were talking about way back in... Uh, 2015, the first time we met at the Draft House, one of the great brew pubs in Austin, Texas, uh, to sit down and talk about joining forces. Um, At the time, the biggest conversation we were having was about uh, coastal consulting practices and what we were going to do together as consultants on coastal matters. But of course, after about 30 minutes, it turned to the real heart and soul of what we've been doing together, which is to think about the American shoreline and what we wanted to accomplish in that realm. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that when you start talking about your favorite beach, you realize that they're all connected and that at some basic level, I think we all have a deep uh, and profound respect for the American shoreline and that the only way to address these individual problems and and areas of concern that we were working on as consultants was to look at the big picture and to to kind of pull our heads out and look at the horizon. And uh, I believe it was there in that California retreat, staying at my mom's beach house in uh, Ventura, California, July uh, 2017, uh, we began to come up with this idea of the American Shoreline podcast. And really, it was all about looking at the coast from the ocean in to change our perspective of the shoreline and to encourage a discussion uh, regardless of the silos that we might be in as consultants or energy people or whatever. And uh, that was really a a monumentous moment for us. It was. I mean... You know, having worked on the coast for 25 years and been a practitioner in the coastal profession, uh, after a while, you begin to gain a broader perspective. And when we were in Ventura, that fabulous beach house, and I just remember the great book that your mother had on, on the table about the history of the development of Ventura County. Of course, I think most of our listeners who've heard of Ventura County understand it to be a great beach town and a great place for surfing. It's got a worldwide reputation as a beach community. But in the 1920s and the 1930s, it was one of the major oil-producing counties in America and was the source of oil and gas production for most of the Pacific fleet during World War II. 
And uh, what was great about the history book that your mother had was it showed that the original beach houses that were built in Ventura County faced landward because these were the oil field workers who looked over the vast oil fields and derricks of Ventura County. Uh, people weren't thinking about the coast, and that got us, I think, thinking about the transition, the economic and social transitions of the American shoreline over time. And it's what's led us to starting Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network is, I think, it's important that we tell the story of the American shoreline. Indeed. I mean, that, that story you're referencing in that book, uh, we were talking with one of our good friends out in Ventura, Brian Brennan, who is uh, who happens to head up the, the Beacon organization there in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. And uh, it, as we worked consulting around the country, we'd meet these these people who were so knowledgeable and, and in their knowledge of the coast and the shoreline, they in fact had knowledge of the entire community, the entire economy, uh, the full history of it, the human uh, elements, the science and, and environmental elements are all coming together. Uh, I often say that the coast is a crucible for the environmental movement in that uh, things most radically change there. Most the Change happens at a, at a rate of speed that is uh, observable and it forces us as a society to confront our management of the space and to ask ourselves hard questions and that's really what this podcast is it's a forum for those questions and we look forward to running right into the fray yeah well let's talk about the catch curve robert and um i think it's going to be as i said instrumental it's it's key it's foundational to the network i think we have to have it and i love the name of the show can you tell us what is a catch curve and what does that mean sure well it's a kind of a wonky science term that i thought would be fun as the name of the show uh, what it actually means it's a breakdown of different age groups of fish and age classes of fish in a stock uh, that are measured in order to determine the total mortality of a stock. In other words, what's the health of that fish stock? Hmm. And it's kind of a wonky term, but I thought it would be fun to use as the name for the podcast because it speaks to part of the technical aspect of what we're going to dive in in the episodes and looking at uh, how the health of a fishery uh, is instrumental to the coastal community that depends on it, uh, ways to understand how it's measured, federal laws and state laws that govern it, um, and uh, and then also get into some fun topics as well, uh, talking about actually catching those tasty fish. what <laughs> you know, this is why I love this show because uh, Robert is not only a policy expert on on fisheries around the United States, but he uh, is also an avid fisherman, and I think uh, that's going to be an interesting take and uh, very appropriate too. And um, so I, I'm looking forward to learning about where the best places are to fish on the American shoreline, Robert, from you. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, I uh, grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, grew up on the coast. Uh, had my first boat at age 14. Uh, was out in an aluminum John boat way far further offshore than my parents ever knew about and uh, way further than was ever safe <laughs> uh, trying to catch my own fish. Uh, I love it. I love hunting and fishing. Uh, it's been a critical part of my life and so it was sort of a natural evolution for me then to get into federal fisheries management policy for a living. Uh, it's a job that I love, uh, and I'm happy to uh, bring in some of the people that I work with in my space to share their experiences and their knowledge for your listeners. So one of the things about uh, fisheries in general that, that I think we should go over for our listeners is that uh, Robert, these are, these are public resources, right? That the, we, the citizens of this country, all own the fisheries that exist in the waters of the United States. Um, can you talk a little about the history of that? And, and that was not obviously always the case. That, that came about by necessity. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic that uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll spend a lot of time diving in because unlike a lot of people who live on the coast who own their plot of land, it is theirs, uh, their sole claim to it. Uh, our nation's fisheries belong to every American in the country, whether they live on the coast or not. So we have to focus on measuring the impact on that resource, not just on who lives in a certain town, a beach town, uh, but the millions of people who may visit it every year from South Dakota or o Ohio or anywhere else. 
Um, we did a poor job of that in American history, traditionally. Uh, we didn't really regulate our nation's oceans, uh, and we suffered the consequences of that. We saw almost a complete collapse of a number of major fisheries in the U.S. in the 1950s through the 1990s and even 2000s. Um, we uh, will spend a lot of time talking in the show about a landmark law that was passed in 1976 called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which yep. recognized the crisis that was occurring in all of our oceans and in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and put in place the first uh, policy regimen to begin to turn that around. And uh, the beautiful thing is that American fisheries are a global success story now, by and large. We have problems here and there, but uh, there's a lot of really hopeful things to talk about that I'm excited to that share. That is good. You know, good news is good news. And, and uh, so much of the American shoreline discussion uh, involves threats and things that are changing in negative ways. Uh, this is a show that's going to maybe tell us some things that are, we're doing well for a change. Absolutely. And, and just by way of background... Uh, the Magnuson-Stevens Act is what it's called. And um, what, what exactly did that do? Sure. So the, the Magnuson-Stevens Act um, set in place the first list of criteria for catch limits, basically, determining what a sustainable level, the science that would go into measuring fish stocks and determining what a sustainable level would be that we could pull out while also allowing those stocks to replicate themselves uh, at a faster than harvest rate. Uh, it also created the 200-mile EEZ zone, um, right. uh, which you know set up federal fisheries between 9 and 200 miles offshore, or for some states it was 3 miles. Uh, the uh, exclusive economic zone. Yeah. Uh, the claimed jurisdiction of federal yeah. fisheries policy. Right? Yeah. Push foreign fishermen and trawlers out of our waters uh, mm -hmm. uh, and create a, a, a set of science-based limits and criteria to begin to manage the fishery. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it also tucked the management of the fishery and NOAA, the National Ocean Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, underneath the U.S. Commerce Department right. because the original vision of, of the fishery was that it was being regulated for commerce reasons. And, of course, there's been a growing dynamic uh, every year of more and more people who use the fishery for recreation and fun. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a we'll talk a lot on the show about the debate and the conflict between those who fish for fun and those who fish uh, to supply the nation with seafood and uh, to export it to the rest of the world. Right. Uh, with any natural resource, there's going to be a little bit of a rub between the people who use it. You uh, bet. Uh, but a, a critical part of managing a resource is figuring out how everyone can share. So what has your role um, as the executive director of the society um, taught you about leadership? Well, I think um, a couple things. One is it's important to uh, lead from the front, right? I think... Uh, you know, my responsibility is to articulate a position to, um, you know, figure out where we're going to stand. And which is not to say that I do that completely independently, right? Um, we, we talk about things amongst ourselves, with the staff, we, we seek out our partners. But, um, you know, it's very hard these days to, to take a position on things. And, and sometimes things which are unpopular with certain folks, right? When we talk about limiting coastal development in high hazard areas because we're concerned about what happens um, when the next hurricane comes ashore. When we talk about taking critical habitat out of development so that um, you know, migratory shorebirds still have a place to, um, to live and to, and to uh, breed, um, that's not always popular with mayors who are seeking tax revenues from that development. Um, but uh, I think you know, in order to have uh, um, anybody follow, you have to lead. So you have to be willing to take that position. Um, then I think the other part is, as I just said, really being humble enough to understand you don't have all the answers. And so a big part of my role is to draw on the great minds and folks that I'm lucky enough to be associated with and to um, sort of integrate their thoughts and and, uh, and their expertise and, and help figure out where the position is. And then, then to bring that back, right, into a, 
um, a set of strategies and approaches that will hopefully be effective in, in answering the question we were trying to set out to, to deal with in the first place. So from that leadership standpoint, I'd like to pivot a little bit to looking forward. Um, can you talk a little bit about the vision for the society's future? Well, we are um, increasingly trying to figure out how to um, um, really uh, carry forward the understanding about what science is telling us about climate and the fundamental alterations of the ocean and its systems and what the consequences are for people. Um, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of body of knowledge out there, and uh, and there's lots and lots of good folks that are raising awareness about the issue. Uh, but it's still, it still hasn't completely tipped the balance, right? It hasn't tipped the scales to where we are aggressively trying to mitigate um, the ongoing contribution of carbon pollution to climate change, nor are we effectively um, coming up with answers on how we're going to have to adapt to the signal that's already in the atmosphere, right? We've already bought ourselves a bucket of consequences uh, from climate that we can't undo. So we're going to have to adapt to sea level rise and more intense storms. Um, and, you know, that's a, that challenge falls into this, this um, history that we have of understanding and being able to bring science to to folks, right, just to, to quote-unquote regular people, right, people that aren't scientists, that aren't necessarily policymakers, and to help them understand how it intersects um, and, and affects things that are important to them, and then how to shape things that can be responsive to what we hear from people when we present them with that information, right? How do I... Um, um, you know, have my community learn to live with the consequences of climate change without losing the things that are important to me, the sense of community, the sense of place, you know, my association with the coastline. Um, those are things that people talk to us about when they when we talk about, you know, the need for change and adaptation. Um, so, we, so we are trying to continue to build our history, build on the things we've learned, but refocus them for these new challenges, which are, you know, they're, they're global in scale and and existential, I think, in nature, right? We are talking about just changing the basic mechanics of the planet and, uh, and having to deal with that. So that's a, a huge challenge. Um, part of that, you know, which expresses itself on the sort of the education end is we're also spending lots of time thinking about how do we continue to redouble our efforts to connect people to the coast, right? As we all get more and more lost in our devices and people become less and less community-oriented, um, how do we break through that and get people back out to where they're getting their feet wet and their hands sandy and learning about and coming to love these, these beautiful things um, that are on the coastline? Um, I think, you know, the, the younger generation of folks um, um, are really uh, oriented towards experiences. So there's a lot of, I have a lot of hope there um, because we're very good at connecting them and giving them experiences like dragging a sand net or holding a horseshoe crab or tagging migratory shorebirds or helping rebuild oyster reefs, things that you don't get to do, you know, sort of in your everyday life necessarily. Um, and I think that holds a lot of promise. So our vision is to continue to try to find ways to do that effectively and then share those techniques um, uh, and in the hopes that others will carry those ideas forward and, you know, code that sort of expanding set of circles. And then lastly, is I think, you know, my vision is how do we become more effective in um, influencing policy, influencing and countering the unfortunate direction that the national government and Congress are going on environmental policy and environmental issues. I mean, the Trump administration has unfortunately sort of said about taking apart a lot of our most important uh, achievements on ocean protection, and um, that has to be stopped. It has to be countered, um, and so we need to up our game um, and rededicate ourselves to that because that's a that's a tremendous challenge. Take a moment here to thank Dune Doctors, one of the best 
dune restoration and consulting companies that work along the Gulf Coast out of Pensacola, Florida, from Brownsville, Texas, all the way around the Gulf Coast, Florida, including the Atlantic side, dunedoctors.com for more information. Sure, um, and thanks for that great introduction. The Junior Guard program uh, with the state parks actually started in about, I think it was 1969 down on Huntington State Beach. The program up here in Ventura started shortly after that. Um, there was several of them that actually started. Uh, San Clemente um, in Ventura, I think we were all right around early 70s. And from there, I think the first, I have some old pictures and there was, you know, 12 kids in the program. Wow. And then it just kind of, you know, it slowly, you just pick up more and more um, people that were interested in the program. And um, that's kind of how it's come. And now, not only in state parks, just about every agency that has a lifeguard service will have a junior guard program that will go along with it. So it's kind of an outreach uh, tool for the lifeguard program of the state of California in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they uh, they use it for many ways. Of course, we want to keep our constituents, our beachgoers as safe as possible. Um, other programs will, well, we all also will use the junior guard uh, participants um, kind of as a feeder program to become lifeguards in the future as well. So there's a lot of different reasons why we have that type of program. Well, if, I'll tell you, as a as a former participant and someone who now works uh, on the American shoreline and is career oriented toward working on beaches, uh, I can probably credit this program with being my first real exposure to the idea that there are careers on the beach. You know, um, of course, it was just lifeguarding at that point. But man, it was so cool. And I mean, we were talking the other day about some of these, you know, when you're a little kid and you're hanging out with these men who are strapping and they work every day on the beach and they got great tans and they're in the, they can surf like you wouldn't believe. I, I was talking to you about Spike. I mean, the, it was so inspirational and you're like, wow, this is so cool to be able to be spending time with these people. I mean, it's incredible. And we're also, I should, I should point out that we're, we're in this ranger office and behind me are dozens of photographs of the students that have gone through, kids that have gone through the program. And I mean, do you know how many people have gone through the program since, since uh, its inception here in Ventura? I have no idea. Um, it's got to be a lot. It's got to be a lot. So it's, you know, we're, we're working on last summer, we had about, we had 968 kids, and that's including the assistants. But for the last decade, we've, you know, we've been, you know, hovering right at about 900 a summer that that come through the program. So you think about it since 72. So we of course, we're, we're larger now than we used to be. But yeah. so 10s of 1000s, probably, yeah, that have done this. And, and, what is the curriculum in a in a session? Well, our you know our main objective, especially when the program started, was really to get the kids ocean safe. Okay. So you did not have to have any kind of experience in the water. You had never have needed to touch the to touch you know the ocean before in your life to have done a junior guard program. But they are required to know how to swim. Right. So it isn't a learn to swim program. So the kids that they come, we we test them and we get them out into you know the kids range you know from about eight to sixteen that actually do the program that participate in the program we want them a little bit older some programs do have younger start times but it a lot of times depends on the beach and the conditions so you don't want a a young kid you know in a beach that has bigger surf where if you have a real flat beach real mellow surf then it you know might be you know doable Mm -hmm. so our being our main objective is to get them ocean safe we're going to do things like um you know Ins and outs. We call them ins and outs. That's going in and out through the surf. So we, if we can teach these kids how to safely go in and out through the surf, um, that is going to give them the skills when they go out to the beach on their own to be able to go in and out through the surf and not know or or be able to to keep themselves out of the rip currents and keep themselves away from jetties and things like that. So. Um, 
we do these skills that are called um, ins and outs, and it's basically, um, and it's also, this is a lifeguard skill. So this is a way that a lifeguard is going to go and get to a victim as quickly as possible. They do a thing that they, we call high-stepping through shallower water, and then as the water gets a little bit deeper, we do a thing called dolphining, and that's kind of like leapfrog in the water. And then finally, you swim. Now, the kids, we give them buoys to use as well because this is a training program. Um, this is not daycare. This is a training. Totally. So this is a training program. And so they're going to have the buoy. They're going to learn how to go and make contact with a victim. And we call them mock rescues. And then, yeah. and then the same thing going back in. But this, when they're out there playing on their own away from the junior guard program, they're going to know how to get through the surf or back in through the surf as safely and quickly as possible. So that will keep them you know, out of, out of harm's way. Uh, Yeah. And it, and it, it gives you the confidence. I mean, if you're that, what's so cool about it is that you're, you're, you're effectively, you're teaching people how to get in and out, but what you're, when you're the kid and you're learning how to do this, you're, it's framed up as a, I'm rescuing somebody, I'm helping somebody. So you really have this objective at the end of the thing. You're not just, it's not like a, a, it's, it's, you don't feel like you're just learning the skill of getting in and out. You feel like you're actually learning how to go save somebody's life who's, who might need your help, which adds a, a degree of motivation and seriousness to it, which for a young person who, you know, having that kind of responsibility put on your shoulders is kind of, you know, rare and kind of cool. And I think we were talking the other day, you told me that some some of your friends or whatever before you can get your driver's license yeah like, like you participate in junior lifeguards yeah it's a requirement a family requirement to uh, to go through the junior guard program because once they are out there being able to you know navigate around the the planet if you will on their own they need to have that kind of you know that skill set it's mm-hmm. a life skill for sure that's another issue that is universal in barrier island communities around the country or shoreline communities around the country with a thousand different answers that are tailored to you know the history and the culture and the economics of the town uh new jersey is beach badges you know that it's the history is you buy a beach badge maybe it's fifty dollars a year they fund their shoreline management programs through these beach bag partly through uh, the sale of beach badges. Uh, paid access is not a traditional Texas uh, device, and it's controversial everywhere that it's been put in place. <laughs> a lot of people squawk when they, what do you mean I have to pay to go to my beach? I'm a, you know, we own the, you know, that kind of thing. It's very difficult. But from a financial management standpoint, Mary, you've got, you've got overnight people who contribute to the local economy and to the local tax revenues necessary to manage the beach through the hotel occupancy tax in Texas. Over in Florida, it's an accommodation tax or an occupancy tax. There's all kinds of names for these things, but basically it's the short-term rental hotel rooms or Airbnb universe of, of revenue that is essential as a cornerstone of shoreline management at the local level all around the country. Uh, but the day trippers who don't rent who come to the island and, and don't rent a place or don't t- get a hotel room, uh, I don't want to say it's a free rider problem, but obviously they're not paying for access to the shoreline. And there isn't, obviously there are sales tax revenues and alcohol and beverage taxes. There are, you know, just the economic activity is boosting the city's revenues. But uh trying to figure out how to finance finance your programs, pick up the trash every day, keep the beach clean, pay for the lifeguards, put sand on the beach, plant dunes, all, you know, that's just on the ocean side of your island. That's a mm-hmm. big challenge financially. I mean, as a business guy, when you're looking at, if we can call your constituents, your customers, um, what, it, what are your thoughts on how to to finance all this stuff you have to do. It's, there's, there, it's difficult, especially whenever, okay, if everything is okay right now, but eventually if you have to add, and we're going to have to continue to add the infrastructure, you've got to figure out a plan in order to ways to finance that. And 
to burden the citizens, you know, who choose to live here with higher taxes is probably not my very first solution. Right. You know, the citizens are going to say, wait a minute, you know, I live here, I pay city taxes, I should be able to get on free or at a, a, a reduced rate. Yeah. And then charge, you know, other people of course. for the use of our beach. I mean, you know, they come and they, you know, they leave a beer can on the beach or whatever they do. We're having to pay for all that. Um, I understand that. But then I also have people in the hospitality business here who may say, hey, they may not be buying as much, but they come to my restaurant. You bet. And they eat, and I depend upon them, and I don't want you trying to uh, run them off or discourage yeah. them from being here. So the, a, I guess the one thing that we do have is, is that on part of our island, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, on on part of our island, we, which is the county's part, they are paying $10 per car. Uh, and then within the city limits right now, they're not. So, you know, when you when you look at that, yeah, you kind of say, hey, wait yeah. a minute, you know, yeah. uh, perhaps we should take a stronger look at this. Indeed. I, I think it's a fair question to ask. Is It's a complicated one. But just looking at when you're talking about having a pedestrian beach, which is when you've got dense development or a highly used beach and kids running up and down the beach and kicking a soccer ball – it is absolutely nonsensical that people would be driving through the middle of it. I mean, if you just get up, get away from the beach and think about what other park can you think of where somebody would be playing frisbee and kids kicking a soccer ball where the cars would be driving through the middle of the park. You know, the insanity of that as an inland idea would be immediately obvious and nobody would do it. But you get to the water's edge and you get this mix and it's a huge safety issue. But the result of making the decision you guys have made to have a pedestrian beach throughout the city means that you have to have this parking every half mile. And, you know, these are where the state regs come in. I think it's great policy. But you have got to acquire land for parking. And, boy, buying a beachfront lot to put a parking lot on is a million-dollar exercise. And, you know, how do you provide for the public when you've got that kind of you know, responsibility as a community, it's, it's not easy to figure out. No, completely agree with you. (laughs) That's why I said, you know, you have to, you have to listen very well to all the, you know, the various uh, constituents that you have. And eventually our shoreline task force will make a recommendation to our city council. I'm one of six members of that city council. Yeah. And ultimately it'll, you know, it'll be something that, that we end up making a decision on. Well, it'll be something, you know, as I know it will, we try to cover beach access issues around the country. It is a very hot topic over in Florida right now. It was a major issue in the governor's race. They've, they've struck a balance between, well, they passed a law that, that prioritized uh, private property rights on the shoreline uh, you know, over there, if you're not standing on the wet beach, they call the sheriff. If you're up on the dry beach in Florida and somebody's property line goes underneath it, they will arrest you. And uh, that, oh ba- yeah, that balance resulted in a governor's executive order and a big old fight. And uh, let's just say it's going to be a big fight in the Florida legislature coming up this year. It's a tough problem. And uh, as y'all work through that and make the decisions that you make, uh, you know, we can talk about it again uh, because crafting the solutions is it's important for all of the communities around the country to see how these things are resolved. And uh, you guys, I think Texas does a pretty good job here uh, balancing these interests. It's but boy, it's never without tension. and you know politics you're gonna get yelled at no matter what you do and it's part you know people say well if i'm getting yelled at by everybody i must be doing something right i i don't know (laughs) well well, mayor i i really appreciate you taking the time i've um but do you have any closing thoughts on do you plan to do you plan to to stay in the in the local elected uh, office or uh do you have a vision down the line? Where, where are you going from here in the city of South Padre, Texas? 
oh, the most important person in my life is the lady that got me involved in all this. And um, it's been uh, eye-opening for both of us. Um, and I still have basically two years left on my term. And um, I, I don't know. I'm getting to it. You know, I, I tell people six years ago plus, we plan to retire and move here and enjoy life. Yeah. And right now, you're working you know, hard. Yeah, I think I put in about 2,100 hours last year Is being mayor. For a dollar. Uh, it's, that, a, it's a great yeah. deal when you got a buck for that. <laughs> <laughs> She's thinking, what did I, I could have gotten him a job, you know, I don't know. I, there's a yeah. lot of other things she could have done and got you out of the house and sticking in the middle of a bear ride and mirror job, which is <laughs> one of the most complicated and politically uh, charged environments you can ever hold office. I think. <laughs> you, know, like, you get home at the end of the day, a little tired to have, you know, have, you know, go out and have a nice dinner. Like, you know what? I'm kind of done today. We've been trying to figure out beach yeah. access all day. It's going to be not easy. <laughs> and that that's whenever you hope that a constituent hasn't had a few cocktails at a, at a, in the room and comes over and says, I mean, I need to talk to you about this issue or that issue. Right. Are you it pulls really... up a chair. Yeah. And that's when my wife kind of rolls her eyes at me. It's like, well, what did I get you into? Right. You can always say it was your idea. I mean, she can't give you too hard a time. You're like, you got me into this. But that's, uh, yeah, you're going to put a new public access way next to my condominium? Are you really? Are you kidding? We're going to sue you for that. So, you know, yeah. enjoy your dinner. I'll see you in court. That kind of thing. It's no fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's a challenging job, and uh, and I, you know, I, I, I'm appreciative of all the people who jump into the middle of these frays and try to work this stuff out and put together the staff that you guys have. That's uh, real professionals who really are knowledgeable and tackle it. And you know, thanks for doing the work that you guys do. And uh, you know, maybe we can when you get when you get something that you really like uh, on access, we should we should talk again. Take a moment to thank our sponsor, TI Coastal Services out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Fantastic coastal engineering company. Go see them at ticoastal.com. So let's pivot a little bit to talk about your work with Her Chesapeake. Um, I'm interested in learning more about the organization and how it all got started. Um, and what are some of the driving factors that led you to start this group? Um, I will leave the question open for anybody that wants to jump in. To start out the way that Her Chesapeake came together, um, I was kind of just having all these ideas swirling around for something new that could be like a space or an outlet for women who work on Chesapeake Bay issues to talk about the challenges that we face specific to our female experience in this line of work. And um, my dog is like <laughs> flapping his head around and scratching stuff so you might yeah. hear him. <laughs> Dax, Dax is a feminist and he was just really excited yeah. about that thought. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, he's here chilling with me as usual. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I was just having these ideas and they were just like swirling around in my mind. So one day, I ran into Stephanie on the stairway of where we were working and I just randomly stopped her and threw out this idea that I was having just to get her gut reaction right there um, and see what she thought about it and see if she thought that was something people would be interested in, something that was needed. Um, and she liked it. So then we looped in Catherine and um, the truth of really how her Chesapeake came together is that it was over drinks. We were just brainstorming ideas over happy hours um, to keep talking it out. And then we started sharing the idea with friends and our kind of closer coworkers. And it's really continued to expand in that kind of way over the last couple of years. And I just like to point out that it was really kind of unextraordinary the way that it came together. Like it really just happened over happy hour. There was nothing all that momentous about it um and we're just a couple a few ordinary people who had an idea and wanted to run with it and <laughs> kept kept pushing it along um and anyone else could do that you know yeah and I think that 
that's such an important thing to note is that so many projects and organizations and businesses and big ideas start over just having that first discussion with somebody, sharing your thought, sharing your passion, um, whether it's over drinks or coffee um, or over email, the fact is is just putting yourself out there um, and bouncing that idea off of other people. Um, and you never know, like in this case, Stephanie was totally on board and then Catherine and then the rest of your board. Um, and now you have this amazing group. So, you know, don't be afraid to make yourself a little bit vulnerable and put yourself out there. Um, because next thing you know, you might be running something like her Chesapeake. Yeah. All of a sudden you're leading an organization. (laughs) (laughs) And doing amazing things. Um, Um, so the other part of your question was driving factors, right? Like what behind this idea. Correct. Um, So the concept of her Chesapeake is that it's merging the issues of Chesapeake Bay restoration and feminism. And I like to point out that our brand of feminism um, means gender equity, and it is meant to be intersectional. So we're always striving to be inclusive of all races, all classes, all orientations, and you know all the rest. Um, so for the Chesapeake side of our interests, my driving factors are that it's a watershed that's important to me, and it's my home. And um, as I mentioned, it's my whole career has been based on Chesapeake Bay issues. Um, and the theory kind of is that if you're empowering people to overcome the barriers that they're experiencing and the work that they're doing, in this case, Bay Restoration, then they can do their work better and be more successful. And then theoretically, the Chesapeake Bay would be restored faster into a better state. You know, Michael, I I don't think people realize how much uh, we demand of the coastal engineering profession, because like you said, here's a company that you work with and and lead that is involved in kind of every aspect of the economic use of the American shoreline. We're talking about waterway management and dredging, barrier island restoration, beach restoration, dune projects, and then recreational facilities. And having worked with coastal engineers over the years, I think it is an underappreciated skill in the profession that so many engineers are so well-versed in the environmental implications of what they do. Um, And it brings to mind the Charlotte County Beach Restoration Program that we had the uh, privilege of working with uh, you on over the last, uh, you know, 18 months, two-year period. I don't think people understand that the engineers are deep into the permitting process of coastal projects, which means deep into Endangered Species Act Section 10 consultations and working with National Marine Fisheries and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and all of the state uh, environmental requirements. And, uh, you know, I find a lot of comfort in the level of expertise that coastal engineers bring uh, both to the technical engineering aspects of these projects, but also the awareness of the environmental implications uh, that that come into play. It's truly uh, unbelievable how much time we spend on the environmental aspects of the projects versus the engineering aspects. That's kind of why I switched the name on, on on the title there for you, because of building beaches better means you have to take into account all of those aspects and and there's a very straightforward design process you go through to design your beach but when you get into the aspects of the environment the environmental protection the inlet management and all of the other conflicting interests and things there's a it's a there's an art to it and certainly the coastal engineering world has had to deal with that Uh, we of course are blessed to work with scientists and i said one of our co-founders michael steven brought that to us early on in the business. We have several scientists on staff, and then we have a great set of partners we work with, and you guys certainly have been part of that, and have worked with those partners too, the environmental specialists and scientists that we either employ or we join forces with because of the specialties, and there's there's the 
what we talked about more of the, the land-based and then marine mammal-based species, but then you also have all the hard bottom issues where you have these near shore exposed rock reefs uh, along the coast of Florida in different places that have been exposed over time, maybe because there hasn't been a beach management plan in place. And that introduces a whole nother level of, of environmental sophistication and, and art and science on how to yeah. handle by building a beach, how do you how do you protect that resource? How do you avoid it? How do you minimize impacts? And then how do you mitigate for it? And so yes, there's so many things they don't teach you in school about how you have to go about doing your job. And so we're blessed to have a great team with us. Yeah, you know, Michael, I I, I want to take a minute and talk a little bit about this hard bottom. Uh, and you know, you it, more than a minute. <laughs> it was one of the real interesting. Uh, developments on the project we worked on in, in Charlotte County together uh, because uh, it was the first time that uh, this particular beach was to be nourished and uh, the project was going to impact a certain acreage of, of ephemeral hard bottom is what it's called I believe and uh, I asked you at one of the uh, workshops we did uh, on the side, a sidebar conversation, if you had been out and, and dived on these reefs. And I want you to share your answer because you have, and they're, they're, they're often poo-pooed because there's a mitigation factor here that, that's expensive, but they do really harbor and support marine life. Sure. This uh, area had never had a beach management plan before. It's one of the few stretches of shoreline in Florida that hasn't had a beach management plan that's, I should say, developed shorelines in Florida that hasn't had a beach management plan in the county. And the residents decided it was long past time. And and so as we did our environmental surveys and studies and, and began teeing up the feasibility study, we mapped the hard bottom. And again, it's it's exposed rock, often it's Tamiami limestone in our neck of the woods, which is basically our platform that's part of Florida is, is built on. And these rock outcroppings are habitat for, of course, uh, down to benthic organisms, microscopic organisms, up to fish, octocorals. Uh, there are plenty of exposed reefs that have corals and lots of other even more threatened and endangered species on them. Uh, fortunately for this particular segment, the species we find are, are very common species. They're not threatened and protected per se. Uh, they are species that are mobile as well, mostly sponges and a few octocorals. And so as we mapped it, we realized very quickly that we literally can walk off the beach and in 300 feet, we are in 10 to 12 feet of water on this reef. And that's how close to the beach it is. And you know, and that's, from, sometimes it's that close. Sometimes it's not. It just depends on where you are in Florida. And in this particular there's, case, there was the 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 fact that the shoreline hadn't been maintained and therefore had retreated, uh, exposed more and more uh, near shore ephemeral hard bottom, and and they call it ephemeral because it's sometimes covered and sometimes uncovered. But in this case, the retreat of the shoreline exposed more. And then the restoration of the beach required its reburial. And uh, I know in the public workshops, Michael, and one of the things I really appreciated about working with, uh, with your firm was the investment that was made in, uh, in talking to the public about this really difficult, complex, and expensive issue, uh, which is the mitigation of the hard bottom that was buried. It had to be replaced further offshore. Uh, and as I understand it, Michael, that is a requirement. Where does that uh, requirement originate, state or federal or both? And how do you mitigate for ephemeral hard bottom resources in Florida? Sure, a lot of questions there, but we'll knock it down <laughs> one at a time. We have a, a team of scientists, including Cheryl Miller and Coastal Eco Group and Dr. Chris Temke with our staff and then our, our marine engineers. And uh, we also had uh, Ocean Seismic Survey and uh, just, as I said, a whole plethora of team of individuals and businesses that worked with us on the project and did extensive mapping, extensive characterizations of the habitats and presented that because we knew this was the number one issue on this project, A, from a 
permitting standpoint and be from a cost standpoint, almost gosh, 30% of the total project costs for this segment will be mitigation costs related to the near shore reef and the both the federal and state regulations protect these reefs. And so it, it originates from both federal and state in the permitting process. And so we have to meet the requirements, uh, both state and federal for mitigating. Mitigation means that if you impact something, you must recreate that habitat at another location. And typically it's done on a like for like basis. Mm -hmm. And the best example we can give you is because more people are more familiar with this uh, analogy, and that is if you were to want to fill those wetlands, you could fill the wetlands, but then you have to recreate those wetlands on another part of your property to offset the impact or maybe a wetland mitigation bank. Right. Well, for hard bottom, there are no hard bottom mitigation banks, so we have to recreate the hard bottom by, in essence, bringing local native rock into the marine environment, but nobody else wants rock in the near shore right adjacent to their beach only a couple hundred feet yeah. off their beach so the agencies recognize this and we work collectively together to develop a a artificial reef that will act like the near shore reef that we are impacting so that it will be a habitat for the same species that right. we are impacting and you know. so we're going to rebuild this uh, impact i'm sorry we're going to rebuild the habitat we're impacting further offshore in about 20 feet of water using local native Tamiami limestone. And uh, we expect it to, to quickly colonize. There's existing reefs out there. We're going to build a million adjacent to existing reefs to help improve that connectivity and uh, hopefully quickly see it populate with the same species. Right. I wanted to ask Dolan and, and each of you, give us your, you know, give us a minute. What is the best thing you saw at the conference, either the best program or the best conversation? What was the highlights for all of y'all? Yeah, I, I, um, I noticed a couple of things. This is my second national coastal conference, but I've been to many conferences on all kinds of scientific and coastal issues. A couple of themes that I observed over the last couple of days is um, I saw a lot of talks about climate change. And this is one of those underlying drivers for everything that we do, whether you're an engineer, a coastal manager, a politician, whatever, um, climate change is impacting what we do. And so uh, I saw a lot of presentations that talked about the impacts of things like sea level rise and how we're starting to plan for that. And one presentation about uh, the Sandag project in San Diego specifically called out how there is the perceived if not actual shift from erosion control to climate adaptation and i've noticed that as an underlying theme in in this conference is maybe a few years ago it was very much kind of engineering centric how do we armor what's the best way to mitigate erosion to a more holistic approach now and it's really exciting to see that shift and be part of it. And um, I saw a lot of presentations about this idea of adaptive management that you don't just fit, you know, find one solution that fits everywhere. Even within one segment of shoreline, um, like Hawaii is a great example of this, where even within a mile stretch of coast, you might have three or four different management techniques. Some areas you might want to armor or mitigate or landscape coastal restoration in other areas, we're act actively talking about managed retreat in you know places like the North Shore of Oahu. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. I think yeah. it's a very sensitive subject, um, but it, it, it points to this value of having a more holistic approach to how we manage the coasts and uh, in some ways kind of getting back to how we used to manage things before we had all this technology was, it wasn't one size fits all and you, you have to be flexible. Dolan, your presentation on Waikiki, that's your focus right now, correct? I mean, that's right. Okay, yeah. so I found it interesting that uh, you're dealing with a beach that is not historically a sandy beach. It was a wetland that was filled in the early 20th century, correct? Right. And your issues now, because iconically, when you think of Hawaii, and I love Hawaii, um, you think... Beach Boys and Waikiki Beach and your presentation I think was really great as far as as 
you're keeping that iconic thing going and you're managing the beach and keeping it the way that people think it should be done. And it, it, it's a weird, not a weird thing, but it's a very unique situation you're in dealing with a beach that was not like that and, and I know to maintain it. So I think that was a great presentation. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that's unique about Waikiki and, and Hawaii in general, but Waikiki, I think, uh, represents this idea of an iconic beach. If you think about iconic features of the world, you know, you get the pyramids in Egypt and the Eiffel Tower and these places that many, many people around the world would instantly recognize. Waikiki Beach with Diamond Head in the background is one of those iconic images that it doesn't matter where you're from, you probably have seen that image and know where it originates. So we pay attention to that, that it does have an iconic feature to it. There's a lot of history there, even though, as you pointed out, it, the beach itself is only, in its current form, is only about 100 years old. It looked completely different prior to that. Mm -hmm. But now people have come to recognize it for what it is. And of course, there's a lot of cultural history behind that with the Beach Boys and surfing that yeah. um, it's not unique to Hawaii in the fact that um, surfing and ocean recreation is an important component to almost every beach. But it's something that we um, in Hawaii, we have to pay a lot of attention to is paying back that respect and the tribute to the culture and the history there. And we don't want to lose that. And things are changing quickly. And we're talking about reconfiguring shorelines in Waikiki, in some cases with new structures. Uh, this is controversial, of course, uh, but it, it's in, I think, many people's minds, it's, a, it's needed in order to maintain what's there now. But we also want to ensure that we don't change the history and the character of it at the same time. Yeah, I, I've, I've noticed that too, Dolan and, and Peter. I, I don't recall exactly when this came up, but there's a theme that we have been hearing on the podcast network is humility. That um, we are uh, anthropologically uh, changing these places, and I think that as we study and learn more, we have become we have become increasingly humble, at least in this circle of people. Um, but I'll, I'll put that. Jwing, you had something you wanted to add. Conference, okay. conference highlights. Yeah. Yeah. What, did you, what yeah. did you like about your, this is your second conference. Yeah, yeah. What, what did you like about this one? Um, for me, I think the, the best take home uh, is uh, back in the old days uh, when we do the project, we only focus on the local area. Now, I think with t today's technology and uh, when we do the project, we really uh, focus on a a comprehensive way. Look, look at the region. Look at the whole system instead of just uh, the focus on one local area. I think this uh, conference is so great that um, emphasizes this angle, and we um, we have so many people from uh, like from industry, from academia, from uh, government agency, uh, different levels, and it's all great. It puts things together and make sure we have a uh, we have a better environment for for our future generation I think absolutely yeah did you have any uh, any presentations or posters that you found were particularly uh, interesting that yeah. you're gonna take away and, and take back with you yeah that's uh, that's a lot I just uh, bring one as example and uh, um, people I forgot the name sorry uh, present something uh, from Amico engineering they present something uh, like a, uh, using uh, radar data to derive, to conduct uh, the symmetry in real time. That's really cool. We can solve a lot of practical problems, also some scientific problems. For me, I, it's my great honor to present my uh, recent research about uh, uh, IRMA impact on our coast of West Central Florida. And I, I present my uh, research results and I actually get some uh, good feedback. Also, I meet some people from uh, modeling angle can help me improve my research to, to understand this uh, impact better. So I appreciate this conference to provide me the opportunity to, uh, to introduce my study and also I get more information to improve my study in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, earlier today we were, uh, uh, interviewing uh, the keynote uh, at the awards luncheon, Paul Kamar, and um, he uh, would, 
he would celebrate that sentiment that there's always more to learn, that you should listen to other people, your colleagues, that they can make your work better. And uh, that's something that he certainly highlighted in our interview earlier. Yeah. For the final part, and we're maybe give a few more minutes because we're going to run over just a little bit of the hour. But um, I want to bring this back to the uh, to the beach and the ocean and the healing power of the ocean. Um, you've talked, you've mentioned your your, your son that, that passed away uh, multiple times. Um, his name was Matthew Thompson. Um, Ken, my my favorite story that I've ever heard you t- tell was the sacred circle story. Uh, the sacred the the sacred circle, the sacred uh, story circle. Yeah, yeah, the sacred story circle, and and it's probably because my boys and and I, well, especially one of my ch- children. Um, sometimes we we have a hard time communicating, but we're on the beach. Um, they just they light up. It's just, it's just, you know, four or five hours on the beach, six hours, sometimes seven hours, you know, all day. Um, they, they let down their guards and it's just like just having fun and, and exploring and, and, um, and, and loving the outdoors and, and what the, what the ocean and beach has to offer. And, and that story to me, um, I, there's, I have a personal connection with it, I guess. I, I just, I, I love it. And, um, I would like you to to, 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 to tell that story, but at, at the same time, uh, I'd like you to think about the, the questions. I mean, I know after the passing of your son, you, you, you said that you had a hard time uh, getting back in the water and paddling out, and I, I can only imagine, I, can, I can't even imagine losing one of my children. But uh, what, what, got, what got you back into the ocean and, 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 and did did getting back and paddling back out and surfing, did that, did that help you spiritually and emotionally um, start the healing process with your, with the loss of your son? Yes, surfing and, and salt water, it's a, it's a wonderful healer. And there's many amazing groups that use surfing as a vehicle to help kids, whether they might have MS or they might have autism, in the vastness of the of the ocean, I think people learn humility, and they learn this sort of flow of life that bobbing gently uh, on the water, you know, surrounded by those sort of energy bands, surrounded by those waves. It's just transformative for people. So I've spent more time in the water than most people on Earth, um, you know, catching waves, catching waves. But sometimes. The best times happen on the, that little strip between the land and the water, the beach. You know, that's such a special, magical, magical time. And yet, yes, I've had incredibly magical times on, on that beach. But, you know, when I lost my, my beautiful son, and it was just absolute horror, devastation, you know, there's no real words that can describe when you lose a child. It's just desolation and, and you know you have to re-examine your faith and like how, how can God do this to me I was a, I try to be a good person and, and why is why is life so unjust and why why is God so unfair uh, but the first step in the healing is this acceptance this what is not what if you have to accept what is not what if because you know, what if opens yourself to blaming yourself or blaming others. And you can't do that. You have to be forgiving of yourself. You have to be forgiving of, of others. And you have to just accept that re- reality of the situation. But still, it's like you, you just cut. You, know, you cut deeply. I was in Rotterdam two weeks ago. I was telling you, speaking at the Rotterdam School of Management. And right in the center of Rotterdam, Rotterdam was very heavily bombed in the Second World War. Half of the city was destroyed by the Nazis. And they rebuilt the city and they've got this amazing statue of this figure looking up to the sky and there's this huge fissure in the middle of this magnificent powerful statue's chest where he's just lost a piece of himself and that's what losing a child is like you just lose this piece of yourself so while 
mentally you can say, yes, I have to be accepting, I have to accept this dreadful reality that I'll never be able to hold and kiss my son again. Um, you have to find the stoke again because the stoke gets swept away. I mean, you know that drive that all surfers have, to like wake up early, paddle out in the morning before the sun has even come up. You know that drive, it was gone. I had, I had no, nothing. I, surfing was gone for me, it was gone. And then a friend kept phoning me up, one of my old school buddies, saying, Sean, I want to take you surfing. Sean, I want to, no, I have no interest. I have no desire. So he just kept going and kept going. So after, I don't know, a couple of months, he said, I'm going to take you surfing. So I said, okay. So I'm going to take you to break you've never surfed. I went, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so we wake up early in the morning and he takes me to this break and we walk down these long steps. Uh, and we paddle out, and it's a magnificent day. This is about three to four feet, just myself and my, my buddy. And I'm paddling out, man, I'm crying. I, I just, I'm devastated. But as I push through that first wave, and the wave hits me in the face, it just like washes, washes my tears away. And it's such a, it's a metaphor, yes, but that literal moment when the ocean like washes the tears away was profound to me. Not because it's a cool metaphor, but it was profound because this is what the ocean was doing. It was like washing tears away. And yes, I kept crying, but they just mixed in with the salt water. And it was like, I just paddled out and sat there. And the sun was coming up and it was beautiful. It was magnificent. The waves were perfect. And, and I could feel my beautiful son. My, my son's name was Matthew, means gift from God. And I could feel him with me. And then I swung around. I caught that wave and uh, felt a bit better and I paddled back out and I caught another wave and I started feeling better and the ocean started healing me. Certainly did because I was busted and broken and the ocean healed me. And then I, I paddled up to my buddy and just like it, one I asked the guy, you know, what's the name of the wave? He said, Ram, what's the name of this wave? He said, Sean, it's called Sunrise. I went, wow. And I felt like my son was talking to me because sunrise is such a metaphor for the next day, for the new day. Um, and it helped me so much. And that was sort of first step perhaps for me to get back on the path of healing and to find, uh, to find a new way. Because after that, my life was different. And I found a new path and I found a new purpose um, for my life. All of the dreams, sometimes it just seems that I'm just along for the ride. Some do cry because they're frightened, someone who's loved him is died. Yeah.